Okay, let me mark this. Resound phone show, take one. Wait, first we have to know, are we rolling? Yeah, when I do that, that means we're rolling. (laughs) Okay, um, what is it again? Let me think. Uh... (laughs) From the Third Coast International Audio Festival in Chicago Public Radio, this is ReSound. Well done. All right. One down. <laughs> you have one message. Message one. Is it night or morning? Please answer me. Is it night or morning? Can't you answer me? Oh, put the phone in the bloody dustbin now. Girl, I know you messing with my man. You better pick up this damn phone because I'm telling you. I know you with my man. Who it is? This Alicia? You don't know who you messing with. I'm from New York, girl. I'm going to watch. End of messages. To delete all messages, press delete. I love the telephone. Always have, always will. And I hate caller ID. That little readout that tells you who's calling, that is criminal. It's like taking salt out of the ocean, conflict out of drama, gin out of a martini. Horrible turns mystery into monotony. Anything and everything comes through the phone. Opportunity, death, love, solace, and pizza. Does it get any better than that? I don't think so. I'm Gwen Maxi. Today on ReSound, The Phone Show. Who would have thunk that great moments in radio would have nothing to do with microphones or studios? Stay with us. I first met Alexander Graham Bell in 1874. He came to the shop where I was working to have his harmonic telegraph constructed. Some of my most personal conversations and most explosive arguments have been on the phone. You know, it all makes perfect sense. Anonymity laced with intimacy. So much easier to express yourself on the phone than facing a living, breathing, reacting person. For those of us who are conflict-averse, intimacy-challenged, or just eternally hopeful, the phone is just plain perfection. We love you, Alexander Graham Bell. Now, no one has figured this out better than Jonathan Goldstein, former producer of This American Life and current producer and host of Wiretap on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. His entire show, each week, consists of listening in on phone conversations. Our producer, Roman Mars, talked to Goldstein, where else, I ask you, on the phone. I like the sound of a voice over the phone. There's something warm and sort of intimate about it. Sometimes shoving a microphone in people's faces makes them self-conscious in a particular way. Like I remember, actually, I was interviewing my father uh, for This American Life. It was for this testosterone-themed show. That, and the story actually ended up getting cut. But uh, I had called my father... I was in Chicago, and he was to go to the uh, CBC in Montreal to their studio, and we were going to do an ISDN. And I remember the quality of my father's storytelling just changed. It was it just changed, and it was um, I never heard him speak in quite that way. You know what I mean? It was novel. I kind of liked it, but it it wasn't quite him, you know. And I was imagining him in the CBC studio, and I had you know I knew what they were like, and I was imagining him in this carpeted room himself smelling of carpet and this kind of dim lighting and the technician 
you know, the, 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 the bearded French-Canadian technician looking at him through the, the window of the studio. And I think it might have actually been the quietest room that my father's ever been in his life much quieter than our house where the storytelling was usually done. It made him, it, he just, he took everything down a notch, you know what I mean? And he got into this very kind of FM radio, hushed kind of uh, tone and mood. And uh, it sort of changed the way that he was speaking to me in a way that, uh, yeah, I mean, I, in a way that I found personally amusing, I guess. But I've since done some stuff with him over the telephone. And just talking over the telephone, I think, is more familiar and comfortable for people. And I think they're pretty much able to remain themselves in a way that makes, I think, for e sometimes easier radio. Hello. Hey, Jonathan. Mary Claude. How are you? I'm okay, but I'm, you know, I'm, I can't really talk right now. I'm expecting a call. Um, can, can, I, can I phone you back later on? Yeah, I, listen, I just have a quick question for you. Yesterday, mm -hmm. when you were over here babysitting, yeah. watching TV, sitting on my couch, mm -hmm. since you were over here yesterday, I can't find the remote. Where did you put it? I left the remote on the coffee table right beside your TV guide. Yes, I did. I left the remote right on the, the coffee table. I looked on the coffee table. I was trying to watch the news last night, and the remote is nowhere to be found, and I still haven't found it today. It might have slipped under the couch cushions. I don't know. I looked all through the couch, and never mind, I ended up finding your cheesy prints. Were you eating cheesies on my couch? I might have been eating cheesies, but I was very careful with where I put my fingers. I don't think you were, but that's not the point. I can't find the remote. I've looked all over the couch, behind the cushions. I've done all that. Well, you know, I, I can't talk about this you right now. You didn't put it on the coffee table. I need my remote. What did you do with it? I put it on the coffee table. The point of having... Stop! You didn't put it on the coffee table. It's not there. Can you visualize? Think back. What were you doing? Maybe the kids were playing with it. I, thought, I saw Katie, like, chewing on it at one point. You let my daughter chew on the remote? Well, I mean, not for a long why time. Why was you watching TV in the first place? Listen, I can't talk about this right now. I'm going to have to. I'm no, going to no, have to no, let no. you go. No, no, no. We do not get off the phone until you tell me where my remote. Are you suggesting that I stole your remote control? I don't. know. Maybe it's in your bag. Did you? It's not. Check your bag. I'm not even going to dignify that. I'm not going to check. It's very frustrating. Listen, I. Left it in your hands. It was your responsibility, and now it is missing. Okay, listen, I gotta go. We'll, t we'll, we'll, we'll finish. What am I supposed to do without my remote? I got a real novel idea for you. What? You, it actually involves you getting up off the couch and turning the TV stations the old-fashioned way. I you know, the know. way they did it back in, like, you know, the olden day, the Shakespeare days. <laughs> I know, I know, but I have a remote so that you don't have to get up off the couch, and I know you were using the remote, and all I want to know is where you put it. Do one last scout around the apartment. I Scouted. Make Turn it into a game for the kids. Have all the kids looking for the remote control. That their irresponsible uncle has lost somewhere in their house? All right, listen. Come on. Look, scout around the apartment and I'll call you back later on, all right? We'll work this whole thing out, okay? Because I got to go now, okay? okay? If I can't find it, you're going to come over here and you're going to look for it yourself. Okay, fine. I'll, I'm looking forward to it. You okay. promise? Yes, yes, yes. Let's talk later, okay? You're just blowing me off, right? I'm not blowing you off. I'm not blowing you off. I wish we could uh, continue to chitty chat, but I got to go. <laughs> all right?
All right. Call me later. Will do. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. I think I think there's a comfort thing with the telephone for people. I mean, most of the conversations that you eavesdrop on that people are having on their cell phones in public are just, uh, I think, are just kind of there for comfort. What are you doing? I'm nothing. I'm, you know, I'm online. I'm going to buy some ice cream. I remember these my, my grandfather and his sister, both of whom are no longer alive. They used to speak anywhere from like 50 to 60 times a day. And uh, most of the conversations that they had were just, I think, you know, it was just comfort. You know, what are you watching? Uh, you're, yeah, Kathy and, and Regis, I'm watching, you know. And they would just sit in silence and watch television together on the phone. There, there is something kind of comforting about a telephone. And there's something sort of sobering about, about a microphone. Or, you know, I mean, or, or, or else it's sort of, uh, there's a way that, that people are conditioned to, to think that they're supposed to talk into a microphone, and you don't have to deal with any of that stuff on the phone. I wish that I was obsessed. Uh, when, I was, when I was younger and when I kind of started to develop my personality as, a, as an adult being, like when I was in high school, I started to uh, want to be an artist. But, but to me, the understanding of what it meant to be an artist like all those models of great genius artists, they're all these incredibly obsessed people, and they're obsessively driven, or they're obsessed with one idea their entire life, or they dress obsessively bizarre, like they wear the same set of clothes every day of their life, or they're so consumed with their work that they forget to eat, and they forget to bathe, and, uh, you know, like John Cage, would, he had all these stories about how he worked until uh, five in the morning scrubbing um the, the bathrooms at the at the YMCA, and then he'd come home and and he'd start composing, and then he'd compose until he had to go to work again. I mean, you know, that you you can't really do that unless you're you're basically completely insane. And that to me was the model of what it meant to be creative and what it meant to be a genius. And when you're 17 years old, I think the idea of being a genius, or at least to me, was very appealing. <laughs> So I made this connection somehow in my mind that in order to be creative and in order to be uh, a genius, you had to be obsessive and eccentric and, and eccentric in your ob- ob- obsessions. Um, and so I guess I, I associated those two things so strongly with with each other, creativity and obsession, that I really wanted to be uh, obsessive because I thought that would be the path to genius, sort of. And the, the truth of the matter is that I'm actually pretty normal. Like, I'm pretty well-balanced. Um, I'm not a particularly details-oriented person, so I'm not, I, I'm not a perfectionist. I'm not, um, I'm not obsessed with getting things right, and uh, I'm not obsessed with, like, uh, um, making my art particularly great, you know? I, I mean, I'm a musician, and, 
and I'm not obsessed with practicing, really. I don't really like practicing all that much. And you hear all these stories about these guys that practice Coltrane, John Coltrane, supposedly used to, and, and Jimi Hendrix, actually, both of them. Stories are that they wouldn't put their instrument down. You know, they'd walk to the store, and they would bring their um, they'd bring their instruments with them, and they practice as they were walking down the street. And to be honest, like, it's just not that interesting to me. But, um, but I felt like if I were that kind of guy... Uh, then I would be a better musician. I would be a, a better artist. And so you do, you know, I would start do these things. I would carry my instrument with me. I play the saxophone, and I would carry it with me. I mean, I'd carry it in the bag because I didn't actually want to walk around and practice it. But, but it's like you um, you create this public image of yourself as somebody who always has his instrument with him, right? And um, I was cultivating this image of this guy who who couldn't be away from his instrument for more than 15 minutes because I had to. Um, I had to be practicing all the time, but I, actually, in truth, I hate practicing, and I and I don't do it that often. Um, I don't have the discipline to be what to be obsessive. All, like all my habits um, are pretty wasteful. Like I click my teeth together in, in patterns, you know, and I do it all the time, basically. And the more coffee I drink, the more I do it, or I tap my fingers. Uh, I tap my fingers against my thumb in, in parallel patterns on my two hands, you know. I do it all the time. Literally, I'm walking down the street or I'm on the subway or whatever, and I'm doing it with my hands. Or I'm, I'm, I tap one thing with my right hand, and then I tap the same thing with my left foot, and then I tap something with my left hand, I tap it with my right foot. So, I, like, I'm constantly doing it like that, but it, those are not useful obsessions. For instance, also, right now, I, um, I moved back home to live with my parents. I'm actually... Um, well, I'm, I'm broke from trying to be a musician, but um, but I'm I'm sort of obsessed with with um, the fact that my stepmother might be listening in on my phone calls. It's I think it's happened a few times, and uh, and so I start to just hear it all the time. Like, have you heard anything when we've been on the phone so far? Like, hear hear what? Well, like there you can hear like a clicking or like somebody getting on the phone, you know. Like somebody on somebody picking up another extension in another room or something. No, I haven't, I haven't heard anything. You didn't hear anything because I thought I, I thought I heard a clicking. You didn't hear that. Uh, no. Well, anyways, I I sometimes I mean I um I don't know what she would be listening for, but I I sometimes feel like um, she gets on the phone when I'm home. And I, I mean, I know she's done it at, uh, a couple times, and then I can't stop. Um, I kind of, I kind of think she does it all the time now. Even though I know, I mean, I think that she doesn't. You know, like, like, I, even when she's not home, sometimes I think I hear like a clicking on the phone, like somebody else picking up in the other room, because it hap- it's happened. I mean, like, uh, whatever. This is, this is just. I'm just talking about how uh, my the things that I wind up like uh, fixating on are totally. They're not useful for anything you know it's like i can't turn that into a um that's not a skill to be to be worried that um my stepmother uh if she were listening like she's like listening on the phone you know so i just i guess i just sometimes i mean i still to this day wish that some of my obsessions could be more wait 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 right there did you hear that Mm, what wait listen i can hear someone breathing you don't hear that? I don't think so. Maybe it's just me. You don't hear like a TV in the background? Or just like very, very faintly? Hello? What do you think I'm saying? Like I'm on the phone right now, you know? Hello? You don't hear anything? 
No. Wait, hang on. Hello? Hello? Anyway, anyways, um, what were we talking about? Hi, Jonathan. It's Mary Claude calling. Listen, I found my remote. You were right. It was in my house. Do you know where it was in my house? It was inside my pantry. Inside a bag of cheesies. And for the record, you don't need to put the bag of cheesies back when it's empty. There's no point. You could throw it out in the garbage. Bye. remember there was actually one story that I was doing for This American Life where um, this woman was very busy and the only time she had was to talk to me was when she was going to pick up her kids and she was stopping at the garage first and uh, and, um, and she was talking to me on her cell phone. In the midst of telling me this story, she was sort of arguing with the mechanic. She was stopped for a moment to kind of muffle the phone and, and yell at this, uh, at this garage mechanic and I thought this is great, you know, this should this should be a part of the a part of the actual story because it it just it feels so real and it's it's the way life is and uh, and it's also entertaining it's sort of like that feeling of like you know like at the, at the beginning of law and order you know when they're like everything's happening so quickly and they're going from person's house to person's house and they're tracking the, the you know the whole story of the of the murder and then they'll you know they'll be in some woman's apartment and they'll be questioning her about like uh, her cousin's murder you know, and what her alibi is and everything. And while they're having this conversation, she's like, you know, she's like towel drying her hair. You know what I mean? So it it makes it, you know, like something's happening. You know, it's not just talk, like things are happening. Although like really like, you know, if you were, if, if, if you were being questioned as a potential like accomplice or something like that, you know, would you, would you actually be towel drying your hair? Right. Probably probably not. One of the things though that I, (coughs) that, um, Excuse me, I started eating a breadstick, <laughs> which is, I think, breaks one of the one of the radio commandments, doesn't it? I apologize. It's a, all a part of me being a horrible, horrible interview. <laughs> Not only am I completely unlucid, but I eat breadsticks, <coughs> and then I choke. Um, it's just sort of like, yeah, like sometimes nice things that occur, I find, that I like to hear in radio is when just natural kind of incidental things worm their, themselves into the story. And I think, like, the telephone is the perfect instrument for that to happen in radio because you're, you're capturing, you're, you're talking to people in their own environment. They're not sitting in a studio. They're not uh, floating in a, in, a, in, a, in a jar of uh, formaldehyde. They're out there. They're living their lives, you know, and you're, and you're sort of like a, a visitor into their life, you know, and, and, all, the, and all the things that, that go along with that, the, you know, the stepmothers picking up the telephones, the... Uh, the arguments with the mechanics, all kinds of stuff, rather than, you know, them being your your guest in the studio. Jonathan Goldstein, producer of Wiretap on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. You're listening to ReSound. Suppose you've got a number you want to call. Well, 
What's the first thing you do? Take up your receiver and listen for the dial tone. Here's how it sounds. So how many times have you wondered to yourself, that guy I was in love with when I was nine, Joe Jones, I wonder what he's doing now. Would he remember me? Well, producer Julie Shapiro had the chutzpah to try and find the long-lost object of her obsession. His mom was kind enough to give Julie his number. Hi, is Steve Maglin there, please? This is he. Hi, Steve. This is an old acquaintance of yours. Okay. This is Julie Shapiro? Yeah, hi. How you doing? I'm doing fine. I, I remember... Uh, you were in, from... Um, you lived in... Um, it's from high school, right? Sort of. Julie Shapiro... You were younger than I was, and um, are you the one that used to like football? Yes. I kind of remember, and I came over to your house one time. Exactly. I know, I think I wore my jersey over there, as I recall. Or did I give you a jersey? Yeah, I guess I did. Actually, my dad and I came to your house, I think, once. I swear we went to your house. I think we did both. I think there was a gift exchange involved. You must have been only about like 10 or 11. I was really young. Yeah. I was really into football. <laughs> yeah. So I remember that part of it. I, I kind of remember your house. I don't remember much more other than you were pretty young at that point. I remember coming over to your house. I think it must have been Christmas time. Because I had found a, a, like a stuffed animal, but it was a football, like a stuffed animal football, and I gave it to you. And then you disappeared. It was very sort of like a commercial and came back with your practice shirt. Okay. Yeah, I kind of remember that. And then apparently you came over once for my birthday because there's a photo of us sitting at our kitchen table. Yep. I remember that reasonably well. That was a long time ago. My parents thought it would be a nice thing to do, and I'm, you know, I'm not against doing those kinds of things, or wasn't anyway. Do you remember it being sort of a strange thing, that there was probably like a nine or ten-year-old girl that was so interested <laughs> in the River Football High School team? Um, I guess a little bit, but not, I mean, not that much. It was just, you're a fan. What can you say? Fans come in all ages. Are you still a football fan? Not particularly. Really? Although I like to think back on how much of a fan I was. Yeah? Yeah. How did you end up with the number 28? Because I think I decided back then that it was my favorite number. <laughs> I don't remember. I don't think there was any magic about it. I think that was just the number I got when I was a uh, sophomore, when you don't really have a choice of numbers that you get and just kind of kept it. When I played in um, college, my number was 16. Which did you prefer? I think 28. Yeah. You were really, really good, weren't you? I guess between myself and the quarterback, in the junior, my junior year, we had 
receivers that were good, but we did pretty well in the All Suburban, All Summit, and those kind of polls. So, yeah, I guess if you go by that, then yeah, I guess I was reasonably good. <laughs> it was it was a lot of fun. I'd, I'd still think about it all the time. It's been uh, nice talking with you and catching up. You too. All right. Hope t- everything goes well in Chicago. Thank you very much. All right. Take care. You too. Bye, Steve. Bye. Julie Shapiro is the managing director of the Third Coast Festival and, in her spare time, is finishing up a documentary about another childhood obsession, plastic model horses. When you raise your telephone and listen for the dial tone but discover someone else talking on the line, hang up and try again after you've waited a reasonable time. Of all the things that would be fun to listen in on, the therapist's office has got to be one of the most tantalizing, which is, of course, why it's so carefully protected. But Australian producer Eurydice Aroni blew the doors off this secretive experience when she produced the series called My Personal Board. Here, we're only playing the very first installment out of the very first season. It's reality radio and quenches the voyeur in all of us. Better than a soap opera, more addicting than The Sopranos... Here is My Personal Board by Eurydice Aroni. You there? Yeah. Hello. Okay, David. Okay, uh, now okay. I'm going to flash you. Go ahead. Woo! <laughs> this is a little early for that, David. <laughs> yeah, really. Any time would be early. Yeah. <laughs> My alarm didn't go off and I just it's got... 7 a.m. in Seattle. Stefan now has to dial 30 numbers to set up the call. No, flying out of bed at, you know, seven minutes to, and I went, oh man, I went straight down to my book to get this five-mile-long credit card number, and I'll be right back. David, thank you. I was just telling you, really, some of the things we used to have problems with... Benita, she's a psychoanalyst in private practice on the outskirts of town. (laughs) Her and Stefan had never even met when she was asked to join the personal board two years ago. Talking to you, but I had it pretty much ready to go. So, so your tea is in, intact. Well, my lemon and ginger, actually. Yeah. yeah. No. Hey, we're all here. <laughs> we're here. Yeah. There's Dan. Dan's the vice yeah, president okay. of VoiceNet Incorporated. He's staying at the Sheraton Leconte in Canada. That's why we always meet on the phone. They're very busy people. <laughs> well, see, we've already got this going. Dan was just asking in the back there. Is your Rudy on? And yes, hello. Say hi. Hi, everybody. I was a little nervous at first, especially when Dan suggested that we all introduce ourselves to the group as if we were our parent of the same sex. This is my daughter, Benita. I live in Mobile, Alabama, and uh, the thing that distresses me the most is that she lives way off in Washington State. Um, This is something that is very hard for me because I thought that uh, having children meant that I would always have them close by. And um, I always thought that she would be there to take care of me in my old age. The personal board usually starts its one-hour-long meeting with two-minute individual check-ins. That's where you get to say what sort of successes or screw-ups you've had over the last week. Then it's decided what or who gets the attention. It's kind of do-it-yourself analysis and support using a conference phone, voicemail and the members' many years' involvement in personal growth and development. 
Now, my joining the group was seen almost as a test of the process, and introducing ourselves to the group from the point of view of our parent of the same sex was a pretty good way to start. I think she should pray more. I'm, I'm very concerned that she doesn't go to church on Sundays anymore. So I, um, uh, in all my letters, I always include a Bible verse and encourage her to uh, hold on to her faith. She is, um, she's always doing something new, and uh, I'm never quite sure what it is. But, but the thing I like about her the most is that she cares about um, doing good things for others and that she's um, nurturing and, uh, and loving with her family. So that's that. Great. All right. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Well, my name is George, and I think this is very strange uh, to actually be talking about myself or my family in personal terms. But I, uh, I'll do it anyway. <laughs> uh, my son David is... Um, 47. He's, by my standards, very successful, more successful than I ever was. Uh, he seems to uh, really be doing what he wants to do. He doesn't stay in touch with uh, his mother and I very well, although he's always available if we need him. He's into all these uh, weird things, Hinduism and uh, chanting and incense, and uh, it just worries me. I don't think Jesus would like that very much. <laughs> but he's a good person, and I'm sure it'll all work out for him. And that's, it. that's my son. Right. Right. That's great, David. <laughs> My mother and your father are now praying for both of us. That's right. <laughs> yeah, you sounded like your dad. I yeah, mean, I know. I really could have sworn it was your dad talking. Mm-hmm. Well, I carry him with me everywhere I go. Right. And what I was aware of was that uh, my mother doesn't know a lot about me. She would never. She doesn't know uh, that I'd be interested in uh, Eastern religion. She knows I'm kind of out there sometimes, but. She has no idea what kind of work I really do or my accomplishments or what I'm interested in much. And I heard that when you said it too, Benita. It's like she just said that you're into these new things, but she didn't say anything about what they were. No, and she doesn't want to know either. It gets her very disturbed. Well, so um, far, so uh, good. Dan, I'm just it was a strange about, experience, uh, though, pretending to be my mother. Dan's father, too, was a churchgoer, a minister, in fact, while Stefan and I, well, we both grew up in Sydney, although he's been living in the States for 17 years. At the time I joined the personal board, they were embarking on a project to set for themselves life's personal and business goals. Please enter your password. The following two new messages have not been heard. Hi, Eurydice. It's Benita. Here's what uh, what I have. My my goal is, and I stated it this way: I choose to be a fearless, passionate agent of change for good. Two, I choose to create deep, loving, supportive, life-enhancing relationships. And three, I choose to surround myself with beauty seek adventure, and create harmony all around me. 
Ayuridice, Dan Hageman. The first one is timing, space, and cash to be and enjoy goofing off. The second one is mystical partnership. The third one is right livelihood on a path with heart. The fourth one is teleconnect with 49 and more of the coolest people in the universe. And the fifth one is musical competence. Hope that helps. See ya. End of message. Gee, thanks, Dan. Um, and to think I've gone 35 years with, with not one goal. But I can see the point. If you see life as a game, well, you need somewhere to aim the ball. Otherwise, you could just end up on the sidelines. I just saw somebody do a presentation yesterday that said 3% of North Americans have written clear goals. 47% have kind of vague, general, unmeasurable goals, and 50% have no goals at all. And the 3% that have written goals accomplish more than the other 97% put together, whether you look at income, whether you look at contribution to society, that there is a pairing between being very clear and accomplishment. Exactly. Wow. In fact, the way the guy put it is he said, so you could say 3% of the people make things happen, 47% watch things happen, and 50% of the people wonder what the heck happened. <laughs> we're supposed to write down what we're doing to achieve our goals. These things will become our key indicators, and then we have to show these to the rest of the group to write down what I'm going to do this year and circulate it to you guys. I'm afraid I'll get trapped in some... Stefan, you and I have talked about this. I'll get trapped in something. I'll lose my freedom. I won't have my spontaneity. Some bad thing will happen if I get clear and specific. Mm -hmm. And I think that's my myth. Oh. Well, I'm a 44-year-old adult. I have a choice about how I work with me being specific. Hmm. Well, one of one of my uh, I feel resistant whenever you bring up this. The key indicators are measuring things, David. Yeah. And um, me too. <laughs> I just feel real this real resistance about it. You know, like I don't want to get pigeonholed or nailed down, or or why do we have to quantify everything? Yeah. And yet, uh, as we're talking about it, um, I feel that my one of my areas of needed growth is to stop doing this because I am so goal-directed and so driven all day long that uh, if, you, if you followed me around with a clipboard, you'd be absolutely shocked. I, I can't believe it myself sometimes. And so it's a real trial for me to take out uh, 30 minutes to relax or, you know, a half an hour for lunch or 15 minutes even. Yeah. And so I think uh, if I write all this down and, and I tell you guys about it, uh, I'm going to be embarrassed. Yeah. Uh, there's something about about that that is um, sh almost a, a, a shame, you know. Yeah. And it was good to hear that I wasn't the only one with doubts. But Dan reassured us all that the idea could mean liberation rather than regimentation. I've had the experience since last Thursday, off and on, of being what I might say in the flow of of. Uh, you know, there's that book out called Flow, but it, yeah. it's something about being at the speed that the Dow is moving or whatever it is, but just some stuff. I mean, I'm in Montreal, and I didn't have any sense that I was going to be coming here until Friday 
and there's a piece of that that I am really falling in love with that feels even better than being a hard worker. <laughs> you know? Yeah. yeah. Like the times that I really get ground up and, and and sort of the capper for it that I just want to tell you all was yesterday uh, we flew out from Vancouver on one of these new Airbuses and I was talking to the one of the cabin crew about what it was like to work on that, you know, did she enjoy working on this kind of an airplane and et cetera, et cetera. And we kind of finished that conversation and she said, well, maybe you'd like to see the cockpit. Ooh. And I went, oh yeah, would I? And it's all computerized. And so I'm up there in the cockpit on my knees talking to these two very friendly pilots and just learning everything about how all this works that I can possibly absorb. And pretty soon I'm tired of being on my knees, so we put the jump seat down. So now I'm sitting on the jump seat. And I stayed in the cockpit for three hours talking to these guys all the way across Canada. <laughs> and it got to be time to land the frigging plane. And one guy says, hey, would you like to stay up here for landing? And it was like, no shit would I like to stay up here for landing. Wow. So I was just like Lee Kid in Lee Candy Store. And I didn't make it happen. Is That's the point for me was that I just sort of asked, well, what's next? Because all of a sudden it dawned on me as we were starting to let down through 27,000 that, hey, we're going to be landing this puppy and I'm still up here. <laughs> mm -hmm. And there's something about that's the way that I want to be in my life as yeah. opposed to, gosh, Dan's such a hard worker. And, and the advantage I'm pursuing this with you guys for me would be I would, I think, encounter and have an opportunity to let loose of all of those preconceptions that I have about what is a good man and, you know, how you drag yourself through life because you're just working as hard as you possibly can and that way nobody will ask you to do something you'll have to decline. Mm. You know, all the, all the stuff that goes along with being a slave. Mm seems to me will come up here as we move toward being specific. At least that's what it's starting to feel like to me. Hmm. That's my hope. Yeah. Very interesting situation I'd gotten myself into. Not only the participation in a weekly meeting, but the daily commitment to a dialogue with the voice mail system. Let's check the mail before I go and see how the rest of the gang felt about having a new member on the personal board. Hi, Eurydice. It's Benita. I just want to tell you that I appreciate it so much having you on the other day. Sometimes I will say something to the guys from a woman's perspective and they won't like it. And, and, uh, and I thought, eeks, this, this may sound bad, guys. You're not going to like hearing this, but... This is what I think as a woman about that, and, uh, you know, so, I don't know. I wonder, you know, we don't, we, we talk about a lot of things, um, but I'm a little bit more open about um, uh, relationship issues, I notice, than they are. Um, if there were three women talking, we would be talking about our spouses or lovers or, you know, all those kinds of things in great intimate detail. And they're focusing on the key indicators of success and whether or not we are going to reach our goals. So it, it is different. Um, I'm curious sometimes about what their perspective is of, of me and if I really do lend a different kind of um, perspective to them. Sometimes I think it's very much the same as a man's because I'm a career woman and have so many of the same issues that they do. 
Um, but anyway, they loved you. And uh, I was out at David's the other day, and he said, oh, I just loved the way you read it. Wasn't she wonderful? And she just get right in there. And, um, boy, if I were a stranger walking in on a conversation that three people or four people have been having for two years, I don't think I'd feel as comfortable. And she just fit right in and was open and with us, and I sure loved it. So thanks again. I look forward to talking with you this week. Bye-bye. End of message. Erase, press 7. Reply, press 8. Save, press 9. More options, press 0. My Personal Board by Eurydice Aroni, produced for the Australian Broadcasting Corporation. You can hear five more 15-minute episodes from Season 1 on our website, www.thirdcoastfestival.org. Bankruptcy, divorce, pregnancy, past lives. Like sands through the hourglass, the saga continues on www.thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio. Well, get along close to your phone. Ain't gonna bite you. By Grammy, I knew that it'd make all them eavesdroppers hang up and run outside. <laughs> If you aren't familiar with his work, let me tell you a little something about producer Benjamin Walker. The man is a little insane, and I mean that in the nicest possible way. Back in 2003, Benjamin produced a series of shows called The Last Days on his program Your Radio Nightlight. The Last Days was a seven-episode documentary about Walker's turbulent state of mind during the months surrounding the U.S. invasion of Iraq. By episode six... He just couldn't take it anymore. Welcome to Citizenship and Immigration Canada Telemessage Service. Bienvenue au service de télémessage de citoyenneté et immigration Canada. Press 1 for service in English. Faites le 2 pour le service en français. For information on citizenship, press 1. For information on immigration, press 2. For information on visiting, studying, or working in Canada, press 1. On applying for permanent residence in Canada, press 2. On sponsoring a relative outside Canada, press 3. On changes to your immigration documents, press 4. On the right of permanent residence fee loan, formerly called the right of landing fee, press 5. For more information, press 6. For information on making a refugee claim, press 1. If you fear returning to your home country, you may apply for protected person status in Canada, formerly called refugee status. First, you will see an official. You may then apply to work or study in Canada. Second, you will go to a hearing to tell your story. After that hearing, you will be told if you have protected person status. For information on where to make your refugee claim, press zero to speak with an agent. Immigration Canada, how may I be of assistance? Um, hi, I'm looking for information on getting refugee protection in Canada. What is the country of origin of the applicant? Excuse me? 
Can you tell me the country of origin of the person you are calling on behalf of? Oh, um, the applicant is me, um, and I'm from the United States. You are a United States citizen? Yes. And you wish to seek refugee protection in Canada? Yes. Um, I, I would like to just say right off the bat that um, this is not marijuana-related. I did some poking around on the internet into this, and I uh, learned that there are quite a num number of cases right now that your government's dealing with with um, Americans who are seeking refugee protection because of marijuana. And well, my situation has uh, nothing to do with marijuana. Um, I'm not against pot. I've, uh, I've smoked pot, but um, I, I don't smoke it regularly. Um, in fact, I would go as far as to say that I, I smoke it very, very, very irregularly. Uh, I, I don't even really like it, to tell you the truth. Um, but if I am at a party or something, and uh, if, if someone hands me a pipe or, or a joint, um, you know, I, I, I would probably, you know, take a, a hit or two, even if I was in Canada. I, um... I'm sorry. Um, could you strike that from the record or whatever this is? Um, uh, I'm I'm just really nervous. Uh, all I'm trying to say is that I'm not trying to seek refugee protection because of marijuana. Will you explain why you are seeking refugee protection from the United States in Canada? Yes, of course. Um, my life is in danger because of the United States government. And I know that sounds totally ridiculous, but um, I'm very, very serious. My life is in grave danger. Now, okay, um, the government has not um, yet come after me uh, physically. There's, you know, the Marines haven't come through my window and, you know, they haven't bulldozed my uh, place of residence, but... Um, I'm really nervous. I, I just don't want to screw this up. I love Canada. And I'm not just saying that because I, I want to be a, a, a citizen of, of Canada one day. There are just so many things about Canada that I like. Uh, you know, not And not just like the obvious ones like, you know, health care. But uh, uh, not that that's bad. But um, many times I go to went Toronto and Montreal a lot. And, uh, you know, I, you just never really see any cops, which, you know, might... might might sound strange, but uh, I think what it what I'm trying to say is that, like, for example, uh, last summer I went to this uh, festival in uh, Montreal, and it was a street festival, and you know there were people out everywhere, there were people drinking, there were, there were beer stands in the streets, and you know there were like scantily clad women dancing on on top of these giant speakers, and and you know these crowds of people, and and I remarked to my friend, you know, there were no cops anywhere. And if this was taking place in an American city, and you know, from New York City or Idaho Falls City, it, it wouldn't matter. It would be the same. There would be a million cops. It would be a lockdown situation. There would definitely be no beer sold in the streets. And, and if it did, it would be bad beer for you know ten dollars a cup, and you'd have to have an ID bracelet and you know like a mark on your forehead or something. And you know, probably the women wouldn't be dancing on the on the speakers either. Um, but, uh, what I'm trying to say is that my life is in danger. 
because of what the government is doing to me, to my mental health. I am totally losing it. Every night I go to bed and I, I, I think to myself, okay, uh, this is it, this is the worst it's going to get. You know, we're going we're gonna to rally the troops here and we're going to pull ourselves together. And then the next morning uh, I get up and I read the news online and things are actually worse and, you know, I, I lose my even more. Um, for example, this morning I woke up and uh, I got online and I read about how uh, last night um, the Senate passed uh, George Bush's tax plan, which is this uh, ridiculous, you know, $500 million tax cut for, you know, the wealthy 1% of Americans that owns, you know, trillions of dollars in stocks, dividends, and uh, the vote the vote was uh, 50-50, and so it, w- it was a tiebreaker done by uh, Dick Cheney, the vice president, who also serves as uh, the head of the Senate, and it's, you know, so, so ridiculous, because he's like one of the, you know, 15 people in this country who's actually going to benefit from this bogus tax cut, so of course he's all for it, he's all, you know, smiles and giggles as he's, you know, gaveling, breaking the tie, and and there's a picture of that, and it, it's just too much for me to handle. Um, you know, I have four friends who got laid off in just the last week alone, and the idea that this stock dividend tax break is, is going to help them is just totally, totally absurd. Um, but things are, of course, uh, way beyond being absurd. I can deal with absurd. Um, I've been dealing with uh, the absurd my entire life, but, you know, you, you can't describe what's going on right now as um, absurd. Uh, the the Halberton thing, for example, um, Dick Cheney, uh, the vice president, used to be the CEO of Halberton, which is, of course, the multinational corporation that got the no-bid contract to do the reconstruction work in Iraq right now. And But, but the thing is, is that um, there are revelations coming out right now that this contract not only gives Halberton the the right to put out the oil fires, which is, you know, above board what it, it was supposed to be, but um, what's coming out now is that the contract also gives them the right to operate the oil industry, including exporting oil out of the country. And none of this was ever disclosed. None of this was ever above board. And in fact, there's only one congressman who's even looking into it. The media is not writing about it at all. Um, you know, Oh, not that that's any surprise anymore. I, uh, you have to be retarded not to know that the media in this country is, you know, just another uh, branch of of the government. Uh, and I mean all of it. This is not, you know, good media versus bad media. This is Fox, CNN, the New York Times, even, you know, National Public Radio. They're all working, and you know, for the same people and saying the same things. If I could just make a quick interjection, uh, I really would like to say uh, that how much I love the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation. Uh, I listen to the CBC program uh, as it happens every day, every day online. Uh, I think it's the best, 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 best radio program in the whole world. You know, my, my secret fantasy is that uh, I'll get refugee status and a work permit and I'll be able to, to work for the CBC or something. That would be so amazing. Um, but that's, of course, uh, later on. Um, right now, I'm, I'm focusing on just trying to get the, the refugee status. Um, are, are you still there? Yes, I'm still here. Oh, okay. Um, um, 
I just, I feel like I'm totally screwing this up. Uh, I don't want it to sound like I think my problem is the media or the corporations. My problem is the government of the United States. I'm seeking protection from the United States government. The audacity here is, is mind-boggling. All of them, George Bush, Dick Cheney, Condoleezza Rice. Do you realize that Chevron has an oil tanker named the Condoleezza Rice? It's, it's probably in, in some Iraqi port right now, as, as we're speaking, being, being fueled up with Iraqi crude, courtesy of Halperton. And then, you know, Donald Rumsfeld, Karl Rove, Paul Wolfowitz, Richard Pearl. These are, of course, the, the people who have George Bush refer to Errol Sharon as a man of peace. But um, we probably shouldn't go there. But we we should talk about Iraq because Iraq is, I think, what's you know totally pushed me over the edge. Um, you know, everybody's acting like, oh, it's over now. We've we've liberated these people, and Saddam's gone. He's hiding out with Osama or wherever failed dictators go. But this is just the beginning. We are now occupying a country. You don't just change the subject. You don't just start arguing over whether women should be allowed to play golf with men. I mean, there's this whole business. It's, it's like a free ad campaign for Al-Qaeda. Every day, one child killed by Marines, one old lady killed by a cluster bomb, three young children run over by a tank, and all the while, the oil is being pumped out of the country under the auspices of a company once run by the Vice President of the United States. And he still gets money from Halberton. He gets like a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. It's crazy. Criminal. But you don't hear anybody talking about this. It's still weapons of mass destruction. Only now they're in Syria or, or Iran. I mean, every time I hear weapon of mass destruction, I mean, I, I lose, like, brain cells, literally. That's, that's another thing I like about Canada, um, how you guys didn't join the Coalition of the Willing. I, I, I was very proud to be um, living on the, on the same continent as you guys. Um... Uh, uh, and, and I, I really apologize for, for this, this long rant, um, but um, to wrap up, what I'm getting at is that all of these things put together, they have totally destroyed my mental health. I mean, it is to the point now where I'm on the verge of just walking in traffic, you know, tossing myself into the river. I just can't take it anymore. You know, when, when I hear, let's invade Syria, I reach for the razor blades. You know, I hear, oh, it's time to privatize Social Security. I, I, I grab a bottle of Drano and start guzzling. I am at the end of my rope. So you are seeking refugee protection in Canada because the United States government is causing you to contemplate killing yourself? Yes, exactly. Because of my government, my life is in danger. Canada is my only hope. That was Call to Canada by Benjamin Walker from his former show, Your Radio Nightlight. He's now producing a nationally syndicated show called Theory of Everything. As of this broadcast, he still resides in Cambridge, Massachusetts, in the United States of America. I think we're going to need a little bit more to, to go into the phone show. So do you have anything else that, that you well, can did remember? You, did you listen to the um, Smithsonian thing? No. Well, on the pilot of 
a Radio Smithsonian show that we produced at the Smithsonian. God, it must have been, I don't know, 15 years ago or something like that, something scary like that. Uh, One of the things that we did was to take a phone tour of the Smithsonian. And it just, and it's cut up and it's very abrupt and it's really cool. I think we just called lots of different places to give you an a, an idea of the variety of stuff at the Smithsonian because of course it's you know some of the hugest collections of right. everything in the entire universe and it's a great little great little piece Cool well let's play that American Fern Society Good morning Neuropterites Particularly if we get a wrong number Skin prep lab. The people are totally thrown off. Meteorites. Tumor registry. We maintain a spore bank. Uh, That's why we're located here in the Smithsonian. Mm-hmm. So what are you working on today? A tectite exhibit. Worms. What? Worms. What? The Georgia Tectite Festival. They're expecting the portrait gallery or something, and they get tectite. Taxidermy. Tumors. Tanning. Ferns. Worms. Reptiles. Fish. Amphibians. And invertebrates. What is the The most interesting tumor? Yeah. They're all interesting tumors. Well. A phone tour of the Smithsonian Institution. You're listening to ReSound. There's a way that the silent phone sound kind of naturally just sort of does this mixing thing that we're sort of hearing it over over the radio, the way that it just sort of fades down by itself, like here I won't say anything. And and in that silence it just sort of like it fades in its, mm-hmm. in its own sort of way. I don't know, that's not enough to sort of uh, no, but I... show it with. <laughs> it's all about the silence, the space in between. If you have any comments or questions about our phone show, contact us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Or of course You could just call us. We're in the book. I fell in love again. All things go, all things go. Drove to Chicago. All things know. Resound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Roman Mars and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. You can hear today's program through thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from around the world. Generous support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, the National Endowment for the Arts, and the Illinois Humanities Council. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. ReSound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else, unless you live everywhere else.